To me, the X-Men became about, it was actually about adults versus children. Because I felt that the whole thrust of the X-Men was actually about the generational thing, that people dislike their children because new ways of looking at things and adults kind of don't like that because it's threatening to them. So I saw the X-Men as being about that and basically that's where we took it in that direction. Basically about the war between adults and youth. I don't know. Don't look at me. I'm looking at you. You got yourself into that. <laughs> I'm looking at you for validation, Stan. <laughs> Welcome to E for Evolution, examining Grant Morrison's X-Men, and we are your hosts. I'm Perry. Hey guys, I'm Oscar. This is Pat. Hi there. And today we're doing a bit of a different format for the, the rest of the run. We just thought we'd kind of, especially because these issues especially are very much grouped by their story arc. So we just kind of thought we'd do episodes breaking up the rest of the run by story arcs. And the first one in that is going to be Riot at Xavier's, which spans New X-Men number 135 to 138. So we're going to get the credits out of the way right now. Uh, 135 is titled Teaching Children About Fractals. Grant Morrison is always the writer. Frank Whiteley uh, is the penciler on this one. Uh, Chris Chuckery is the colorist. Uh, Tim Townsend is the inker. Richard Starkings and Comic Craft Sida are doing the letters. Uh, Joe Casada, editor in chief, Mike Martz, editor. Uh, number 136 is When X is Not X. Again, Grant Morrison uh, is the writer, quietly again doing the art. Uh, Chris Chuckery, Mike Martz. Uh, Chris Chuckery's colorist, Mike Martz, the editor. Uh, also, Avalon Studios is credited. I think that's part of the coloring, just as artist here. Uh, um, Joe Casada, editor-in-chief, Richard Starkings, and Wes Abbott doing the letters. Uh, 137 Riot is titled just Riot at Xavier's. Uh, looks like the same, pretty much the same uh, team on that one. And then the climat climactic issue, uh, the prime of Miss Emma Frost. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, all the same credits on that one too. Although Albert, I'm probably going to mispronounce his last name. Albert Deschesnay is also doing the letters on that. Um, so let's go ahead and jump into it. What do you guys think of Riot at Xavier's going back and rereading it? Um, and Quietly's back, which is always exciting. And I realized this is his last arc in this run. Yeah, you're right. I never really picked up on that. But this is kind of the last thing we see him do. Because after this, mm -hmm. we get <clears throat> Jimenez on uh, Murder at the Mansion. We get yep. uh, Bacalo. Mm -hmm. And then... And then is again. Jimenez again does Planet X, and then we yep. get um, Mark you know, Silvestri. Mark Silvestri bringing back one of the classics for the the final mm -hmm. arc. So yeah, this is sort of a, a welcome return and a fond farewell to mm -hmm. Frank. Yeah, I agree. I I really forgot how how little quietly contributed to the to this run. It's it seems when I think of the new X Men and and Grant Morrison. I, think of quietly it's sort of the, the two are synonymous with each other but really he just sort of helped do the he just done the designs right other artists sort of um 
really carry the rest of the run or, or, or commit to the rest of the run. But his art is definitely superior in a lot of ways, and this was a welcome return. Yeah, because yeah. I, I can't remember when was the last time we saw him. Uh, was it Imperial was the last time we saw him, or did he come back for at least one issue at some point? I have to think hard about that question. Um, Imperial, definitely. <clears throat> He was, I think, I think it was Imperial. Um, I might be wrong. You're but, right. But I believe that it, Imperial was last time because Cordy did pretty much most of the New World stuff. And then we had a few fill ins um, here and there, but it was mostly Cordy's show. And then, and then, so we don't really see uh, quietly again until this issue. So, yeah, it's kind of surprising in retrospect that even though when people talk about this run, it's often described as the Morrison quietly run. And although, quietly did set the artistic style for this run he's not really the he's not the he's not the artist for you know probably even most of the issues i, I think he defined like a lot of he definitely yeah he definitely defined visual approach aesthetic. yeah so um and that everyone was working off of so i i think it makes sense to sort of call it that mm -hmm. My memory was just that he he drew so much more of it. It's funny how sometimes your mind can play tricks on you like that, right? Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a testament to the strong design, right? Yeah. Like you, you remember him doing much more than he actually did. Um, what about uh, some of the themes we're talking about here in this issue? One of the things I thought was pretty interesting, and I know we're, we're kind of jumping ahead here, but I remember reading it at the time the story seemed kind of anticlimactic, right? Like, but that was kind of the point, <laughs> reading it in retrospect is, and I think that's one of the, one of the cool things about it is that it's, you know, Quentin is trying to be this, you know, he's trying to establish himself as this, you know, mutant revolutionary. And really he's just a punk kid who doesn't really know what he's doing. And he's being very reactive to admittedly some very, big developments in his life mm -hmm. um but i think emma sums it up very well in part three where she's like well you've taken over the mansion what now mm -hmm. what now what's next or when xavier walks out and he is he's got the tape on his mouth and he says the revolution mm -hmm. lasted all of 10 minutes like, yep it's funny that that that's your take guys like i i think that um i can see where that that comes from with especially when Xavier comes out and says to them like, all right, guys, well, you can stay out here and protest as long as you like, but just letting you know, school's shutting down for the summer in six days. And uh, I'm stepping down as headmaster anyway. And they all kind of just be like, oh, okay, well, we'll go home then. But I really liked the uh, the scene, particularly with uh, Xavier and, and Quentin and Quentin saying some pretty powerful things to Xavier. And he doesn't really have a lot of answers back when just questioning, you know, um, the whole ethos of Xavier and not, um, of them not being aggressive enough in terms of like trying to make things better for the mutants. Uh, I thought that questioning was really good. Like young people are supposed to question the guard, right? They're, they're supposed to be revolutionary. They're supposed to shake things up. And we can see young people still doing that now. I, I thought, wow, this, this, this story out of all of the stories can really be um, brought to, to today. It stands the test of time, definitely. 
Well, I think both things can be true, right? And I think that's kind of what Morrison's going for in here is that it's it's the the arrogance of youth where you do have, you know, he's got good points. He's making logical arguments, but he doesn't know how to turn that into, he doesn't know how to take it from the idea stage to the action stage. And, and I make think, lasting change, right? Yeah, yeah he says exactly. like, oh, uh, it's because we're young and it's our right <laughs> you know, mm. to tear everything down. You've created and replaced it. I can just see like culturally, if we look at so many things in the culture, even just now, like um, I don't know, the Me Too movement or the the forwardness that the LGBT community have done and with the trans community and uh, pronouns and all that stuff. Like, you know, Quinton says, it is true. We want to tear down everything you've created and replace it. I think that's so relevant today. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I don't think it's not relevant. I just think that Morrison isn't, I think he's doing, he's showing a very realistic take on, on teenage rebellion, because on the one hand, you know, you can be rebellious and have good ideas, but also be arrogant about it and not really know what to do with those ideas. I mean, yeah, but that's what they're always, that that's always going to be the teenage rebellion, right? Well, yeah, I know. It's and just, I, that's what I'm saying. That's why it's, I think it's a nice even-handed look at it. As For sure. To... I'm sure like it would have been the same if it had been written in the 60s. It's uh, the kids are always going to push their boundaries. I I enjoyed that interaction better than anything else in the book. Well, maybe some of Emma's lines, actually, at the well, end. One of the things is interesting is, too, is like when Quentin says, you know, all I've done is see things from a higher perspective. All I've done is grow up a little. And one of the things I, I like about this is. And I'm saying this as someone who remembers being a teenager myself and now being someone who, who works with a lot of teenagers in my day job. Um, it's, it, it's like, you know, it's like, a, it's like a teenager who finds his first philosophy book or gets his first taste uh, of the counterculture and thinks he's, he knows everything and thinks he's got all the answers. And I think, I think that's, and I, but he doesn't. And I think that's kind of a, a nice thing that Morrison's doing here. And because I think Morrison himself would probably acknowledge, or Morrison themselves, sorry, would probably acknowledge that they used to be more like Quentin. I think at this point in their life, they're more like Xavier. Are you trying to tell me that you were once a teenager? Yeah, I was, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> who's, who's more like Xavier? Morrison. Morrison. Yeah, like I think you mentioned last episode where this arc seems to be Morrison trying to interrogate that conflict or mm. argument between trying to innovate or move things in this in the comic book genre and the art form right. versus the pressures of like trying to make things or trying to have things be consistent and uh, static mm -hmm. because there, I think there's a certain element to at least superhero comic books where this notion of you can do new things but not too new because it all depends on consistency and things being the same and that sort of gets played out here in this arc which I never really realized before you made that statement in the previous episode and it's interesting how Quentin here makes arguments that see more in line with what we see of uh, Xavier earlier in mm. this run, like especially in the arc with Phantom X was introduced where he's saying things like, you know, we don't have time for chimpanzee politics, right, which right. is 
such a thing that Quentin would say. And now you hear, you see Charles sort of acting as the establishment. It kind of feels like Morrison is starting to, I think there's this old adage about as a comic book, you know, when you're working in superhero books, you get to take out the toys and play with it, but you have to put it back for the next mm-hmm. person. And this really feels like Morrison sort of entering that phase of starting to put things back for the next people to come along. I think it's also Morrison having kind of an argument with himself, because if you look at or with themselves, sorry, I keep doing that. Uh, when you look at their body of work and you look at their early stuff, like, you know, Zenith or or the Invisibles or Doom Patrol, Doom it's, Patrol. it's very much this revolutionary, in-your-face, avant-garde type of stuff. And then you look at their later work, like, you know, All-Star Superman and- Justice League. Justice League. And it's very much, you know, very much more establishment type superheroes. And it's good stuff and it's revolutionary, but it's revolutionary in a much more subtle way, right? It's not as in your face. It's not as loud as as their early stuff. Yeah, like it really drives home the point, I think, that the innovations he created ultimately seem more like stylistic and aesthetic which is not like a small thing rather than sort of a wholesale appending of the X-Men mythos. Um, I will say this arc probably has one of my favorite issues of the entire one, which is the second part. X is not, I just think it's the, it's a masterclass in plotting structure and art. Like it's probably my favorite, one of the favorite issues, one of my favorite issues in the run. And I this, really enjoyed the focus on the, on the, what do we, does he have a name for them? The special class. The special class, Excuse yeah. Me. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. It, it's it's kind of funny. Um, before we talk about the special class, I just wanted to mention mm-hmm. one more thing. Because, uh, Pat, you mentioned something about your your line about the, the chimpanzee politics in the earlier arc. <laughs> made me think of an argument I had back then for it, which, you know, there is no polar opposite to Xavier. So he's kind of sliding. And Mm. now when Quentin comes in and he's Mm. kind of taking, stepping up into that role right away, Xavier goes back into establishment Mm. mode. So I think that's, Mm. that's an interesting point that I didn't, that I didn't think of uh, before you mentioned that. Uh, But yeah, now let's go ahead and talk about the special class. Uh, First Um, off, one of the interesting things one of the things i think is funny here is that um obviously chuck austin and other had never picked up on when he wrote his last two issues of this of this run where cassandra nova is actually uh Ernst. Ernst. yes <laughs> I, I mean the visuals alone i like mm-hmm. it, she, she looks like her and then in here comes tomorrow she flat out says it and Chuck Austin I mean, yes. still didn't pick up out uh, pick mm-hmm. up on it. <laughs> Which may be an editorial thing, though, right? Maybe, maybe, yeah. I, I think also... Chuck, Chuck Sorry, Austin gets a lot of blame for a lot of things that he did wrong, and and I, I I I think we can't assume that it was an editorial fault when it comes to Chuck Austin. You know, there's just so many, so many things that he did wrong. Like, uh, but I always knew that Ernst was. Cassandra Nova, and I never realized that other people didn't know that. It was so bizarre to me when I when I found out that people were never picked up on that. I'm like, she, she fucking says it, and here comes tomorrow. Yep. 
Um, it, it they're just such a cool, maybe cool is not the right word. They it, they're a well picked cast of misfits that go so well together. I think they play off so well with each other, and they're it's just uproariously funny. I, I I think this may be one of the most laugh out loud comics I've ever read. Um, but particularly like all the jokes with um, God, what is his name? The gimp suit guy. Oh, dummy. Dummy. <laughs> the sentient gas. Yes. And, and no girl, which is a, a thing that gets carried along. Wait, I'm still not sure if no girl is actually real there, or if everybody or if they're just right? looking with Zorn. Right. And and that ambiguity is very cool. I mean, to this day, we we don't know, and it's still mm-hmm. not clear. I'm not even sure if they know because there's that scene when um I think it's Ertz says, you know, no girl says she'll go on a date with you if you if you help us, Basilisk. And then and afterwards he introduces her as his fiance. <laughs> uh, I thought, what do you guys think of Zorn in the context here, in this context, given what we find out about that he's actually Magneto in the end? Uh, I don't know whether you guys felt this, but I felt like it was a little, it, well, obviously it's more than a little bit, but it seemed like, knowing and rereading it knowing this it was like watching this i'm trying to think of, of like an appropriate way to say this but it, he's it's grooming like watching them some, he was grooming, grooming them. them yeah he's, yes, he's, he was he's, grooming them he's grooming these children right yes. he is um very deliberately uh getting ready to make them do bad things do wrong yeah. things mm-hmm. and taking advantage of their innocence and uh, and their vulnerability. This one and, panel here in, um, I thought this was a really interesting panel because just the way that Quietly draws Zorn's mask here, and I never really picked up on this before, but it looks it it looks almost sinister in this picture. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought he, it always looked a bit sinister. It looked it, it's always looked. Uh, it has been. I like, think it just jumps out at me more in this panel. Uh, just because in, I don't know, maybe it's it's the angle, it's the way that it curves. Because I think in other times it's been a bit more straight. It hasn't, but when you, I don't know, maybe it's maybe it's just thinking about it in the context or just the way that Morrison wrote the character. I mean, I love Zorn's visual design. I think it's a it's a it's a great way to kind of hint at this sinister thing inside him, even though he. He doesn't, even though, even though he's portrayed as this very, you know, peace-loving, you know, noble character. I mean, and, and it pays off later in this mm-hmm. arc too. You know, that scene that he has with Angel, where, like, we don't quite know what happened, but we know something real. Not necessarily bad at this point, but but something untoward, like something sinister happened. That- I- you, you don't Morrison know. It doesn't it, show us. We we don't see it, but, right. but that makes it more uh, scary in your mind, right? More when you don't see the bad guy coming up, you you have to visualize what would have happened. So we don't know how viciously uh, Zorn murdered the human, mm-hmm. but it's very clear that um, he's killed them, and turns around to Angel and says, "You know, it's our little secret." That's another big grooming thing mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. yeah that's um, a good point um sorry go ahead pat i mean it's interesting to think about now too where you know you have quentin and his group 
sort of engaging in this very loud exercise of riot and revolution when really the, the real revolution thing is happening in the woods with the special class and nobody knew about it and no one even gave them a second thought like so like the, the real infiltration of the school is happening here well that's for quentin right and quentin says well maybe the enemy is within exactly although i think that he was referring to sublime there which we'll get to but we'll get to that yeah i do want to i do want to talk about that yeah um but about zorn in this sequence i think one of the cool things about that Morrison does here is Zorn almost feels to be struggling in in these trying to get it, getting to know you moments. Like, you know, it's like, what are we going to do, Mr. Zorn? He's like, do? Um, this is us doing. I thought we would meditate. And it, at first, when you're reading it at the time, before you know what Zorn, the secret of Zorn, at the time, you think that maybe it's just he's just trying to find a way to connect with these kids. And he's just not really sure what how to do that. But you're looking at it back now. And I kind of look at it as Magneto struggling to maintain this persona, because as soon as the U-Men attack, he knows exactly what to do, right? You know, this is quite unacceptable. There will be no need to go further. Stay here. Wait for me. He becomes complete. It's like a switch flicks in his mind. Mm hmm. I don't know, did you get, what did you guys think about that? Do you, do you have any similar things or anything to add about that? I, di I didn't really. I, I thought that um, e even had Zorn not been Magneto, it would still be appropriate for one of the X-Men's leaders to say, kids, you stay back here while I go and deal with this. You know, I'm not going to put you guys in, in more danger. So I didn't read into that the same way you did. But... I don't disagree with your analysis. I mean, it, 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 it kind of feels like a cheat, but it's a good cheat because, I mean, the first time reading it without benefit of hindsight, it just feels like, you know, Zorn is this kind of dorky camp counselor and he's just trying to relate to the young kids to have a productive learning experience in the woods. But after getting to later story arcs, like lines like hope we would become friends and learn something about ourselves and our limits feels a lot more like, hmm, that is not as benign or friendly as on, on the first reading, actually. I love how Quietly draws Zorn in these panels when Angel finds him. Mm -hmm. And just like the, the use of the shadow here is very effective. And Angel agreeing, right? Isn't that interesting? Like, Yeah, it, you know, the right? first time it's I so read easy. this, I wondered if there was some sort of mental influence going on here. But now that we mm -hmm. know that it's Magneto, then, because um, I remember reading it at the time being like, oh, there's, that was easy. there's something weird about Zorn here. Right. And I didn't know what it was. And, and, and she's not the most, what I would call, agreeable character. She's not, but she had suffered so much trauma by the U-Men, right? They had, mm. uh, they had really uh, been quite vicious to her. And of all of the students, she was the one that had been the biggest victim from the U-Men. So she was the right one to say, yeah, look, I'm not going to say anything. If you, go, if you do this to these people, they're bad guys, and I'm, I'm just going to look the other way. She's the perfect character to have done that. I wonder, too, if it's just if it's horror at seeing this, you know, outright display like this, because she hasn't, 
I mean, she's seen that before with, with Wolverine, but seeing it with someone like you expect it from Wolverine, you don't expect it from someone like Zorn. And I think that kind of scares her a little bit in that scene as well. I also wonder if uh, mean, his power set is so vague, if like him doing that would even seem unusual to her, like, hmm, Mr. Zorn, is that something you can usually do? Or is that something you to just happen right now? All right. Uh, so what about the, the riot itself? What do you guys think of Quentin's actual staging of the riot and his and his um, the Omega gang? I agree um, with you that you're with your assessment earlier on. He said it is a little a little bit anticlimactic. It's kind of like over before it's gone, begun. But that that is the kind of point of it. But for me, the highlight of the uh, the riot was the start of the the last issue of this arc. And we get to see another four or five silent pages. Mm-hmm. And it's so, so good. It's so cinematic. It's kinetic. It's um, dynamic. It's just everything that's great about Quietly and Morrison together, all in those four or five pages. I, uh, I mean, the thing that the panels that stick out to me now that I always remember is him uh, not even fighting like messing with Logan and it's such a nice call out to origin because I think origin was coming out right around, around this time, time. yeah, yeah this, this was the first yeah I was gonna say this yeah. is the first mm-hmm. time that origin that, is yes, actually was referenced. acknowledged yep um, and they call him James Howlett which I or not maybe not Howlett but they call him James James yeah for the first uh, time very cool mm-hmm I too, I like um, Emma talking about the Hellions here. Uh, right? I don't know what it is about young people these days, but I do miss the imagination and verve of the little zealots I used to teach. There was a while, there was a wild romantic light in their eyes, and they threw themselves into the fray at every turn. Now it's all bored stairs, vague demands, and a few broken windows. Hardly the stuff of mutant legend. And then Esme's like, "But weren't they all killed, Miss Frost?" Ross. <laughs> And she I, has I, some I, good zingers. Right. And, and bless her. But I, I feel like she's exaggerating their virtues. But I mean, we're, we're not going to speak ill of the well dead at this time anyway. Um, now, something I want to talk about in this in this scene with Wolverine is and this was something that was going on at Marvel at the time. But what is with the soul patch? Uh, yeah, I was thinking that as well. But the, the whole thing with Marvel at the time was they wanted to uh, because Wolverine is in every single book in this this era. Mm-hmm. They wanted him to look uniform and have the same kind of look, and they decided on the ultimate Wolverine look. It's yeah, so it, <laughs> yeah, oh, it's so jarring. But I, I honestly think if had they removed the soul patch, mm-hmm. it could possibly be the best Wolverine could look. Mm-hmm. His hair is more realistic when it's a bit longer, and it would like sit down rather than spike up. I, I like. And, I prefer the the spike. It's 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 such a trademark of him. Here he looks. It's such a generic look. Here looks a bit younger. Looks a bit cool. I I don't know. I don't dislike it. The only thing I don't like about it is the soul patch, and the soul patch is like heavy. It's yeah. like a real big tuft. It's not just like a nice little softy one. It's huge. I feel like he's about to go into. He's about to be doing slam poetry or something. <laughs> I it, it, I think it goes beyond a patch. It, it's almost a, 
a bush, I would say. <laughs> the, the soul bush. Oh um, my goodness. But I do like this idea that it's, um, again, we were kind of taking the piss out of Logan in this scene because it's, mm-hmm. you know, he's every all throughout this run, everyone's been kind of like, always been kind of afraid of Logan. And then Quentin takes him out like that. I don't know. What'd you guys think of that? The fact that he's just, because he doesn't do, even though he's been part of Morrison's run this whole time, he doesn't do a whole lot in this run. And I think that's, I've always felt that that's kind of Morrison commenting on Wolverine and how he doesn't really fit with this idea of the X-Men as being revolutionary and forward thinking and about peace. As as he should be really, shouldn't. Sorry, Oscar, you're you're breaking up. Uh, we're waiting for that. Pat, what did you think about the depiction of Wolverine here? Um, I, I guess it's the uh, you know the, all the buildup and uh, all the like you said, anticlimactic <laughs> and anticipation of a big showdown kind of gets short circuited by Quentin and like two seconds um which is par for the course and i do like how it gives us that very emser like mc escher-esque panel Mm -hmm. we get for that sort of shows how quentin is messing with him i also like how cyclops is the one who takes down the revolution right he's just (laughs) you know lay down Mm -hmm. your weapons unless you want the teaching staff to turn this into an impromptu martial arts lesson lesson. (laughs) and you know Red Dagg's like, you're going to let him walk walk all over? And then just Cyclops takes him out with one optic blast. And then Tattoo is bitching about the fact, you broke his nose! nose. I really like um, that when she complained about the breaking of the nose, it really brought them back to the fact that they are teenagers. Mm-hmm. You know, like a te- teenager, I can imagine a teenager in a school being really mouthy and mouthy. And as soon as an adult sort of knocks them back down, they're like, well, hang on, you can't do that to me. Mm-hmm. Um, this panel with Hank is actually... I forgot all about this, but it's interesting to think about now in the context of Jumbo Carnation coming back, um, where I think there's a, there's an issue of Marauders where I, like there's a line where they mentioned that he was murdered, um, that everyone just accepts, but I completely forgot that that wasn't really the case. No, yeah, it's an inter- it's an interesting little. I'm not sure if it's an editorial oversight or some or maybe something that's more going to be explored later but yeah I, I completely forgot about that it's interesting to think about now that everyone seems to be going along with the notion that he indeed was murdered well i mean also you know radiant says more of xavier's lies so i wonder if that factors mm-hmm. into it at all yeah um there's that panel which is also this this arc is just i think quietly at his peak I think so too. Uh, with the cuckoos taking down Quentin, and there's that really cool, you know, like you, it's very, uh, I guess I could compare it to Dr. Manhattan and Watchmen, where you see his sort of like component parts, and then, you know, he just gets blasted, and you, you see like his veins, his skeleton, his muscles, his skin. It, it's just truly well crafted. And yeah, like if you, I think if you need a panel, to sort of showcase like why is quietly so amazing this would that would i would pick that one 
I, I'd agree to. And again, like I've mentioned many times before, you can really kind of feel the motion in the, mm-hmm. in his art. Mm-hmm. I agree with like, you guys. He's, his art is so good in this run. Uh, it, it reminds me a little, the progression of the art getting better and better every time we see it. It reminds me a little bit of um, who was the ex-force artist in the nineties, Adam Polina. Polina. When Pula that run did it first, Polina, yeah, Polina, yeah, yeah, Polina. When he when when he first done his run on X Force, the, the first couple of issues were like not great. The people looked, you know, the characters looked a bit ugly. But in this this run, Morrison, when I look back to especially the women at the earlier, were depicted in a way that weren't wasn't really beautiful. Where Jean Jean and especially Emma looks so beautiful in this run, uh, this arc. His his art's just gotten so much better. It's I don't know how. I don't know. I, like I can't put my finger on exactly how it is better, but it just it really is. One thing I don't like though, and this is probably more due to the colorist than quietly, is I don't really like Emma's the portrayal of Emma's diamond form in this arc. I liked it better in the first time we saw it when it's 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 much more like. You don't, do you remember what I'm talking? I don't even know how to describe it, but it's yeah, like, it looks no, more like solid skin. and um, shiny. Yeah. But here it's just like a color. Yeah. Right. Like you still see her skin. It's just shiny and reflective. Right, right. And I think that could be up to the, that could be down to the colorist. So I don't want to blame mm-hmm. Quietly for that. But here it almost just looks like, I mean, you could mistake her for, you know, someone who can just turn into metal basically it, it or doesn't ice. It, or ice yeah it's mm-hmm. not that it doesn't look as striking as as the diamond form did mm-hmm. um and speaking of the you know the kinetic aspect of quite lee's art you know this opening page in the prime of miss emma frost when when beast is taking down uh herman i like that must either be the smallest cement truck ever or zorn became a giant <laughs> like, that's a good point like, yeah like that it's very anyway it, it i'm gonna go with small cement truck but two i notice here and this is another little tiny little clue in the artwork but mm-hmm. you know how uh zorn tips the truck over mm. right and i guess oh, you could the say metal yeah yep. you could mm-hmm. say oh he's using gravitation he's strong really or whatever yeah yeah because i remember people mm-hmm. notice i remember noticing like wait a minute that doesn't look like he's actually using his hands on there um so it, it does look like it's there's some magneto powers coming through here i, I when this was coming out I, I just sort of chalked it up to he has a star in his head which is just a plot device that will let you explain well pretty much anything he probably will do right I remember thinking that uh, it was kind of cool to see some background characters with Beast saving the uh, the two mm-hmm. innocent bystanders and then being two old gay guys. Did you guys those... notice that? No, no I, I didn't notice this. Mm-hmm. The that guys was here... in the car that um, that glob runs through. Oh, I never mm-hmm. even picked up on that. That's... Um, the pages are loading slow because this. Yeah, I never I wonder, picked up on that. Wow. 
I wonder if those are, are meant to be real people who the artist knows. Oh yeah, you're right. I never even picked up on that. Interesting. Uh, my what do you brain think about- is, is wired to look for any kind of sort of queer subtext in anything. <laughs> so it's like a magnet. I just pick it up straight away. Bang, bang, bang. What well, I think I do anyway, but that was one of my favorite five pages in, in, in this run. I just think it's, it shows Quietly's art being at, at peak. I love how Wolverine's talking to them in, in this scene when he's like, you know, you're, you'll be sent to the third war, world and then you get to put all that revolutionary energy helping people who need it. You're going to help people until you bleed and you sob and then you'll help some, them some more. <laughs> and then we have the, the cuckoo splitting off from Emma in, in this scene here. Um, I, I, I don't think anything will ever beat the uh, breeding line, but uh, I'm only 27, you ungrateful wretches. Might, <laughs> might be a close second. Now here's the, the big, this is the, the scene that the first time reading it, it didn't really jump out to me, but reading it a second time, you really kind of see what was, what was being hinted at here. Mm-hmm. But this idea of, you know, I'm streaming going away into the bigger rooms, outside mm-hmm. rooms bigger than the whole world. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, obviously reference to his connection to the Phoenix Force. Um, but also Zorn coming in to kind of cover up, right? What if we were both right. wrong? What if we were both wrong, Professor X, and it wasn't humans to blame at all? Mm-hmm. And uh, and he's trying and he's trying to cover it up here, right? What if the real enemy was inside all along? And, and Zorn's saying this as if, and this is kind of a hint because throughout the entire run, you know, there's always this talk about Zorn being a healer, but he's never ever, and whenever it comes time to, for him to heal someone, it's always like, oh, I can't do it. This, it doesn't work in this situation. And here, ironically, Mm -hmm. there's nothing we can do. We're just going to speed up the process. So um, it would be wrong for us to interfere with, with what's happening. I definitely read the um, maybe the enemy is within. It's about Quentin talking specifically about Zorn rather than Sublime. But you guys have made me realize that he is talking about Sublime, not Zorn. But I wonder if it's re- it's supposed to be written in a way that Zorn thinks that it is about him, and he's like, "All right, you need to be quiet now." Well, yeah, I, because that's well, that's what the kick is, right? It's influence. Right. It's Sublime influencing, influencing. Magneto. Mm-hmm. And so that's what's happening here. So, you know, on, it, it, it works both ways. Like it could be Magneto mm-hmm. thinking that Quentin is talking about him, but it could also be Sublime, you know, controlling Magneto in this scene. Both of them are, the way it's written, it could be, it could be both. And I, and I think it, since, you know, the, sorry everybody, but you know, it's been years, but you know, the, this reveal that like Sublime's been pulling the strings all along Mm-hmm. really makes this the line work because he's really the cause of every of all the violence and why magneto's acting this way etc and what did i did guys sorry go oh, ahead, go ahead. No, no, go no, ahead. No, i was just going to talk about um uh scene with the professor stepping down but if you had something to add about this context first uh, well uh i mean not specifically about this issue maybe but given where quentin ends here what did you do think about his eventual return um 
does it does it is it a is it a good return or is it one of those like oh yeah well you know he has to, he had to come back and so it happened this way i mean it, it's tough to say because on the one hand quentin it's clear morrison had a very specific intention for quentin and quentin mm-hmm. very much fulfills that in this arc and there's not really much else for him to do until he comes back at the end of here comes tomorrow as mm-hmm. as one of the phoenixes mm-hmm. so in that sense um in the sense of him like kind of you know he was a character created for a specific purpose and that purpose is gone and and ever since then everyone just because he has some growth here right when he realizes this and as much as i like quentin as a character as much fun as he is and you know when he's at the school and he's being a he's being a pain in wolverine's ass Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a lot of fun. I love the way Aaron writes those scenes, but it does kind of t- it does it's kind of a regression for his character after what we see in in this page, these two pages. So so I'm mixed. Like I do like him coming back and doing and you know being that kind of character and being this you know this little rabble rouser, but at the same time, it does discount this character development he went through. Mm-hmm. I couldn't have put it better myself. I feel like I echo those sentiments completely. Pat, how about you? What do you think of it? Um, yeah, like I feel like like he had to regress to fill to fill the role that he's been filling, mm-hmm. or at least that he had in Wolverine and the X-Men all up until the current era like i don't know how caught up you are perry but i feel like they're bringing him they're catching up him up more to be where he's at at the conclusion of this arc it's kind of weird they they brought him back and then it takes them what like 10 years to bring him back to the point that morrison brought him to in four issues yes like you know where where he's starting to be more self-aware and he's just i mean i think there's still an element of that rebel rouser to him and i i think he will always be annoying wolverine for one reason or another but there's recently of late just more like self-growth and self-reflection on his part Um, that's kind of the that's kind of the double-edged sword when you're when you're resurrecting characters right because if they had a death that had a specific purpose Mm -hmm. um or if that character served a specific purpose or a specific need bringing them back it it kind of in a way it, it depends on on how the death was handled but like you know gene gray being the obvious example or um thunderbird too right he had a his per his death served a specific purpose um and then sometimes and i haven't read any of i know thunderbird's back so i haven't read any of the stuff since he's come back so i don't know about how they've been handling it but you compare it to something like um what's a good example I'm having trouble thinking of a good example here. Uh, oh, Winter Soldier, right? Mm-hmm. They, you know, when they brought Bucky back, because there was this longstanding idea at Marvel that the only two deaths that are permanent are Bucky and Uncle Ben. Mm-hmm. When they brought Bucky back, everyone's, you know, thinking like, well, you can't you can't bring him back, right? You, you can't, but then it ended up being such a good storyline that it became this, it really dr- brought the character in new directions. Um, so if you can do that, then yeah, it, it works really well. But if you can't, then it's kind of, it feels like a waste. And I, I feel like, yeah, like it, he is, it's Bucky 
but I feel like that character is so radically different from what we knew of Bucky before that it's almost like you, you they weren't bringing back the same character right if that makes sense yeah, yeah well and that was part of the that was part of the story right mm-hmm. Brubaker had this whole idea of this conception of the Bucky that we thought we knew was basically mm-hmm. the you know the the propaganda Bucky the real Bucky yep. had this other darker purpose that and it works and it works so and it's such a good explanation for how that why that character would exist because if you're trying to look back at those stories that character doesn't seem to fit you can buy Captain America buying Bucky is a little bit harder of a sell mm-hmm. especially the way he's presented as oh this young guy who lives on the base found out Captain America's identity so now he has to be Captain America's sidekick. Mm-hmm. it felt very forced and so for them to give this other reason for it made a lot more sense it's also a really cool way to get the fandom to accept a new character mm-hmm. right like uh it's really hard for for the big companies to introduce new characters and get the fan base to just accept them rather than the old traditional characters right. but by saying like this is a new character but guess what he's tiding with the continuity it's relevant mm. for the comics from 50 years ago. So by this issue, it, it's, I think that was, a, that was a big part of the marketing of making Winter Soldier really great. But um, going back to uh, the deaths and the relevancies and, and how it matters to the characters, I think we spoke about this when we started the podcast about, like, for me, one of the things that made me love the X-Men when I was a kid was that they did actually die. It wasn't like watching the Ninja, Ninja Turtles or something where everyone lives and we're all to fight again another day every single episode. And as much as I've been happy to see the resurrection of certain characters that have been gone for a long time, like Sync um, or Banshee or, I don't know, or any of the other characters, it's been great to see a lot of them back. The loss of the potential for somebody to die in a comic book has really it's bothered me. I, I want a character to die and just stay dead. But but do you? Do you really? Yeah, I do. I, I think it makes the it makes it relevant. It makes it lost. It makes it more powerful. It's mm. but by taking away the potential of of a character disappearing from death really takes away a lot of the um dramatic potential of every story it's like superman's never gonna lose right because he's so um, powerful he's too powerful well he, he he might lose for a little bit but not but that's i think only to set up the eventual return and, and victory and triumph right like so he you have to start somewhere low to have the story uh, go somewhere so you sit on the other side of the fence. You think that the death, the, the, the lack of death in the comics it doesn't diminish the dramatic potential? I mean, I guess it is what it is. Because, I mean, there's this competing pull of like, yeah, we want a good product, but you also want enough people to buy the thing so they can keep making the product. So they can hopefully make a make a good version of it like and i i'm sorry perry this may get us canceled but um 
I mean, I'm not the biggest Wolverine fan, but I've sort of accepted the reality of like, you got to put him everywhere so people will buy the books so then they can keep making the books and maybe you can like at some points get the books that you want and love. So it's sort of like this necessary evil of like, yeah, that's a revolving door because fans are just not going to let go of certain characters. And that's just the reality of the business to get to the high quality stuff you want you like there's just certain things you have to live with which is thematically what we're talking about because you know mm -hmm. it's the old thing about youthful rebellion versus compromising as an adult i suppose i mean that's one of the the risks you run into with serialized storytelling because these mm -hmm. and and i think that's why there was so much pushback to claremont in the in the early 90s and why he ended up getting pushed out of the books because mm -hmm. as a creator, he didn't want to keep writing about the same characters. He wanted to, to do new things and to push it in new directions. And that's understandable. But when you're working on something like the X-Men, you know, people have their favorite characters. They want to see Wolverine and Cyclops and Storm and all those characters. And they don't care as much about, and, and you kind of see this in the years since Claremont left, right? How many, it's why that the there are so many freaking mutants in the world to begin with, because every creator who comes in creates new characters. And then when another creator comes in, he kind of ignores those characters and says, no, I want to focus back on my favorite characters. And then I'll introduce one or two of my original characters. And you have, that's why you have this. So you had the, the generation X kids in the, in the mid nineties. And then, you know, when Morrison comes in, he creates, and then the the people I can't remember who did the 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 New Mutant series during this time, but that's when the the new X Men characters all came in, and the Generation X kids for the most part were kind of forgotten about for a long time, mm -hmm. and and then even when you know you had Josh Whedon come in after this, he introduced some new characters to throw into the mix instead of you know instead of using another character in um, like Dust or like Angel, right? He creates armor instead and throws her into the mix. And that's just a continuing cycle, right? And it's, it, it's kind of the, it's it's just the nature of the business. It's something that you, you kind of have to accept um, if you're going to be reading these types of comics, right? They're not Ooh, intended yeah. to be these, they're, they're not intended to be, um, they're intended to, to be you, you cycle through a certain amount of stories. Eventually you kind of get tired of it and then you move on and a younger generation comes and replaces you. And that's how comics were for a long time, which is why Stan Lee always talked about the illusion of change as opposed to act long lasting character change. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it always fascinates me this I'm not sure, obsession, like fidelity. I'm not sure which word to use about like and I, we're going to dangerous territory here. About, so I'm thinking of the clone saga of Spider-Man and all the uproar about like, how dare you? How, how dare you say that this, this, this Peter Parker is not the Peter Parker I've been following. It, like, it, it's fascinating. Like it becomes almost this like personal affront to people. Like, uh -huh. like there's something like fundamental, like it's a personal, like there's something fundamentally personal about like having that rug pulled out from under you which i mean maybe if i was a spider-man fan i would understand um 
the out, but it's just fascinating to me. Like it doesn't, I didn't feel like that would, that didn't illegitimize all those other stories. Like they're still there. Like they, they still mattered, right? Like they still exist. But you know, Raymond Chandler was, this reminds me of Raymond Chandler was once asked how he felt about Hollywood, um, mm-hmm. you know, trashing his books and butchering his books. And he just said, mm-hmm. and he just points up at the shelf above his, his head and he says, Hollywood didn't do anything to my books. They're right there on the shelf. They're right there, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's kind of that same phenomenon, like with like some Star Trek fans I know, like, oh, all this new stuff is like destroyed everything. I'm like, but I look at my shelf and, and the Blu-rays are still there and I can <laughs> pop them into my thing at any time and watch them. And most of those people um, seem to are... <laughs> are discounting the fact that Star Trek was very, very progressive for its time. Indeed. Indeed. Um, but yeah, and you see that all the time. And that's why mm-hmm. whenever people get up in arms about reboots or, or, or relaunches or anything like that, uh, like, you know, I, the phrase that I wish we could, we could, uh, we could throw on the ash heap of history is they raped my childhood. Wow. <laughs> I mean, like, wow, like if they did, let, let's get you some authorities, first of all. I mean, but but like, it, it, come it's, on now. I mean, like I one example that sticks out of my mind is Michael Bay's Ninja Turtles movie. Right. Total uh-huh. piece of shit. Right. I hated that, that a, movie. Is that real? Are you making that up? No, that was real. That was real. Okay. He didn't direct okay. it. He, he, uh, he produced it. But, but okay. yeah, it was okay. the the Andrew Ninja Turtles and then uh, the sequel Out of the Shadows, the one with mm-hmm. Megan Fox in it. Terrible okay. movies. Utter, mm-hmm. utter dog shit movies. But, you know, watching those movies, I never for once thought like Michael Bay is ruining my childhood. It's like, it's, it's You've just made me think yeah. now. I remember going to the cinema to watch the first two Ninja Turtle movies. Oh, the ones from thinking, the 90s? Yeah. And just them thinking, me thinking like that was so cool. It was so good. And I think I might rewatch them now just to see whether they're probably just as bad as the michael bay ones no the the first one actually holds up pretty well the first one is actually really good i did that uh on my podcast uh, about two years ago i think um that one actually holds up really well the second one not so much but the first one definitely holds up um so so back to this arc it it's interesting that if i think if you strip like some of the connective uh plots and threads that feed the subsequent storylines like it works really well as a final arc like like morrison could have stopped here i mean i'm glad that he didn't Mm because there's lots of fantastic stuff yet to come but i think it really works well as as a bookend had they decided to end it here yeah, I think so too. I mean, there would be some lingering stuff. Like we still mm-hmm. got to figure out what's happened, what the deal is with Zorn. But this really feels like um, an end of an era here because mm-hmm. you know we have Xavier stepping down and the the affair getting uncovered and mm-hmm. and yeah, it this feels like a a big turning point um, mm-hmm. for if if we look at the. I think you can look at Morrison's entire arc as, you know, if you kind of look at it as a, as a, as a three act structure, you can kind of see, you know, the end of act one is like Imperial. This is like the Mm -hmm. end of act two. And then act three is what we're going to get beginning with murder at the mansion. Mm -hmm. I agree. Can I just say one thing about these, the, the, the Emma Scott affair scene. Mm -hmm. I think the panel where, 
she's dressed she's being very aggressive in this this scene you know she's she's traumatized and she just wants to have a sexual experience to help her heal and scott's kind of uh, uh, i don't know don't know and then you know, he succumbs to her um persuasion but the scene that the, the shot where she's unzipping her phoenix costume and he's taking his shirt off mm-hmm. i think for me it's one of the most sexually charged panels of any x-men comic ever oh yeah definitely i yeah i, I can't think of anything else that comes close like that They're... is the that, that that's the pinnacle of sex within the x-men cyclops mm-hmm. looks like um brad pitt in fight club and Emma just looks beautiful. That's how she should have looked in that last page of that Cordy issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. She should have yeah. looked as beautiful as that. And and I and the the sort of role playing and dress up I, just adds to not that it needs it because, like you said, it, it was already pretty sexually charged. But it, it adds this additional layer of just. Look how naughty! Like, look how naughty we're being. Just, just all <laughs> kinds of na- so naughty. But I think so also naughty. one of the cool things uh, quietly does here is even though Emma get changes her hair color right mm-hmm. in this in this psychic image, mm-hmm. it's still Emma. It still looks like Emma mm-hmm. Frost. Right? It still looks yes. like Emma. It still looks like Emma. Their faces mm-hmm. looked different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. If this yeah, was it, if this was a lesser artist, right? As soon as Emma changed the hair color, you wouldn't know. You would be. You would. It would look exactly like Jean because so much. Uh, there's a lot of comic artists who draw faces exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Um, but and I'm not. I'm not knocking anybody because you know, as an amateur artist myself, my faces don't all look that different. But it, it's difficult to. It's a real diff. It takes real skill to to show mm-hmm. those differences in the facial features and quietly being able to do that is just like, there's no mistaking it, right? You look at Jean in this panel here, no mm-hmm. mistaking that it's, it's Emma and Jean. It's not two P two redheads who, who look, who look like twins. Mm-hmm. It's not um, Madeline Pryor and Jean Grey. Yeah. Right. And uh, I, and the listeners, if you're following along, I, I cannot unsee that Glenn Close thing anymore, Oscar. <laughs> it's here. It's here. Now this, I think I mentioned no, this. But I only see Glenn Close with um, Jimenez. Really? Oh, not quietly? Well, see, now you're... No. I said, oh, okay. Because I... Hmm. Uh, now this is, I think I mentioned this when we did the, the first issue of The Affair. Um, mm-hmm. But this is one of my favorite lines of... Of, of the run when you know gene when gene emma says stop being such an old superhero scott and scott says but i've never been anything else i've never been allowed to be anything else that summarizes scott's character so perfectly i think hmm. and i think that's yeah and that really nails down because you know like he says too well when apocalypse possessed him you know, made everything seem boring afterwards. He made my life seem so small. My experience is so limited. And this is always one of the things I found intriguing about Cyclops. And this is what had made him, because up until this run, you know, I think like most people who came into the X-Men of the 90s, I didn't think much of Cyclops as a character because he was just very much 
the Boy Scout, the Mr. X-Man type. He wasn't as interesting as some of the other characters that were be, that were in the time, like Wolverine or Gambit or, or Beast or any of those guys. But here, we really get insight. And I think Morrison has done, has really worked with Cyclops's history and how, because one of the, you asked fans of the old X-Men what, and you think Claremont himself said that when X-Factor number one came along and Scott left Madeline to go be with Gene, that was when he started hating Cyclops as a character. And I think a lot of fans of that era also felt the same way, but the way Morrison subtly uses that here in this depiction of Cyclops, you realize that one of the things that makes him such an interesting character is when he's in the X-Men role, when he's in that role as leader, as superhero, he knows exactly what to do. He knows how, how to do the job, right? He's very competent. He's very self-assured. But when you get into his personal life, he's a total mess. And I always thought that. Do you think it? Sorry, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt you. I just want to just to like uh, add something to that. Um, don't don't you think that's a little bit like um, when you have to be like a nurse or a psychologist or a police officer or what you know? Or they're all, all noble um, roles, but they have to cut a bit of themselves off emotionally mm-hmm. in order to excel in that performance. And it's like Cyclops has done that in order to be like the great X-Men, right? He, he's built up all of these walls around his emotional side so that he can perform as the leader and get the job done. So much so that the, his personal life has just been untrained. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, that's a very good comparison. And, and I think but that's, I, and that's, sorry, go ahead, Pat. Like, but I think Scott takes it to a very extreme degree like I mean, both within the world of the fiction, like I mean, there's 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 characters who are able to have, um, you know, fulfilling and I don't want to say entirely functional, but perhaps more functional uh, emotional lives mm-hmm. um, than he does. I mean, same thing with like nurses and policemen. I imagine like there's there's plenty of those types of folks who live perfectly balanced not perfectly but you know well-balanced lives so i i feel like scott takes that need that requirement to an unrealistic unnecessary degree i think that i think i think you're right i think he does take it to an extreme degree but i think that's kind of what sets him apart in that way Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. you even think about this is in my mind because i was just reading the um i just was watching spider-man 3 for the other show and you know, you think of Spider-Man and, you know, his personal life's a mess, his his personal life and his professional life as Spider-Man, they often bleed in together. But even he seems to have more balance than Scott does. Scott's just either one extreme and mm-hmm. he doesn't have any handle on the other side. And I always I think this I, I think, think the same could be said are a lot of people that focus on their career too much. Oh yeah, I think there. Yeah, we, I think we've there seen are something people like that. We've seen a similar sort of trait with Storm, right? When Storm had her relationship with Forge, and Forge proposes to her, and she's like, "Oh, let me think about it." And then he he decides that she has just devoted too much of herself to the X Men, and that she she doesn't know how to live the rest of their life. I wonder I mean, if this it, is something that happens to a lot of soldiers. 
Well, to be fair, though, like at least for these characters, they, there's no there's no separation, right? There's no mm-hmm. retreat. Like they they live there. They work like this is their lives. Like there's no there's no home outside the mansion. Like that that is their home. Like that is the entirety of their beings. Other than I suppose the occasional sojourn to New York City or Harry's Hideaway or something, like this is it. Yeah, you're right, and. You know, like the event, if you compare it to the Avengers, they, you know, some of them live at the mansion, some of them don't, but they mm-hmm. tend to have some sort of existence outside of the team, which is why I think not many X Men work very well in solo series because unless you take them out of that, the mansion environment, unless you take them mm-hmm. out of that team environment, mm-hmm. it, it's kind of hard to to do solo adventures with them because it's like, well, why don't they just call the rest of the X Men if they need help with something? Or even like, who are they outside of mm-hmm. that? Like, do they even have personal lives, or do they even have any issues or conflicts or things to go through outside the context of the mansion, outside right. the context of the X Men? Which is probably the why the most successful X Men characters to branch into solo series have been the more loner characters like Wolverine and Cable. Right, who've had histories and and uh, well, in Logan's case, in Cable's case too, mm-hmm. long histories outside of being in an X team. Yeah, yeah, I think that's those. Yeah, those are good points, and I do, and I. So, um, what else to say about this? Uh, what do you guys I, think about I, the gene reveal here? Although, well, before we get, I, I would say though that I, I would buy the hell of a comic with Emma doing boardroom cutthroat businessy stuff. I would, well, yeah, I, Emma's I one would of those buy characters. A lot of it. I mean, Emma's got such a strong personality, and she does have ties outside of the X Men. I think she could also mm-hmm. work in a solo setting. But you think of someone like it's really hard to do a solo series with other characters unless you take them out of that X-Men environment and kind of build them up from that point. Um, I also just want to say, I love that little scene with Emma and Angel. Emma takes her shopping as, as a way to cope with the cuckoo sort of going to Madame Lafarge, who, by the way, listeners, has hair on her palms, which disqualifies <laughs> her from effectively teaching people. It, it's just, it's, it's interesting where, you know, when we see them, I think the last time you see them really interact is Emma telling her, uh, you know, I, yeah, bring it. Uh, I'll, I know how to deal with this petulant children. And now they're sort of engaging this mentoring relationship, which um, very much feels like Emma overreacting in the way yeah. that she does. But yeah. Yeah, it definitely felt like she's trying to, to compensate for the fact mm-hmm. that the cuckoo's left. Mm hmm. Um, yeah, that, that last scene, I, I think we all knew it was coming and it's, and it's finally here. Um, and, uh, I think I was genuinely very worried that Emma would not survive the next few issues. Well, I mean, Morrison did such a great job in like ratcheting up the tension here, right? Because mm-hmm. you see, you know, Emma's coming on to Scott, very strong. Mm-hmm. She's, she's in need of some sort of a distraction here. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you've got the cuckoos thinking like, well, what should we do with our powers? Who should we? And, and how should we reach, mess with our former yeah. teacher? And they reach out to Jean and they're like, oh, there's mm-hmm. something you should see. Mm-hmm. And it, 
just like and that all both and then those two worlds colliding at once and just that last splash page is just brilliant and just Mm -hmm. don't tell me you can explain perfect line um but i remember when i i remember when i read it i what what i thought was oh shit Mm -hmm. oh Mm -hmm. shit and you know Mm -hmm. the bottom of the page it says next murder at the mansion (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) indeed indeed I actually have a friend who has had this happen to her. She um, unexpectedly come home from work early and walked into her bedroom and saw her her boyfriend in bed with somebody else. And I said to her, what did you do? What did you say? Like, how are you not in prison? Mm -hmm. And she said, Mm -hmm. she just opened the door and said, wow, that's really nice. And (laughs) shut the door and walked out. There was a, there's a meme. So I think Jean's response is like, perfect. Yeah, so there's this meme going around lately that um, it's this it's this picture of this uh, this couple like it looks like it's their their proposal day or like the wedding picture or something like that. And the text of it says, you know, you know, I had it all. I had a perfect life. And then, you know, I'll never forget the day 10 years ago when I came home and found flowers, you know, flowers all over the house. And then my husband fucking my Pilates instructor this picture is not us. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that meme. I have seen that meme. And, and I, I love how it undercuts, like, you know, you see these kinds of scenes in movies or TV shows where the the the, the people caught right-handed will always say, I can explain. And mm-hmm. I, I just love how Gene sort of, or Morrison undercuts that by just, yeah, I know, You're, you can explain, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such a great ending. And I remember reading this at the time when i got to that last page i'm like oh fuck when's the next issue coming out mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. it definitely had excitement for the next issue like you, you wanted it straight away it, it it's a perfect cliffhanger mm-hmm. well i think this is why like i said before when we were talking about the last issue um this arc really kind of felt like stepping on the gas right it really kind of felt like a, a kind of a soft reset for the series and it felt like morrison had really hit his sec hit their second wind mm-hmm. with this arc because now it's just like you know after the new world stuff which was okay it was a little slow in parts dragged here and there mostly good though but still it's not as explosive as you know e for extinction or then when we get to when we get here like here it's just Morrison just slams on the gas and just we speed through to the end of the the end of the run like Mm -hmm. when I reread this this whole run the new world stuff always I slow down when I'm reading that it takes longer for me to finish it but as soon as I get to Riot Xavier's it just boom 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 I can't stop until I get to the end of it yeah I really feel like he's take Morrison's taking the time to sort of set up a lot of dominoes that now they're going to start falling in the next few arcs so yeah Okay. Um, any other final thoughts about Riot at Xavier's? Pat? Uh, I really enjoyed it. It was good to see Frank Whiteley again. And uh, sadly, for the last time in this run, um, though not entirely, because there's a bunch of other cool artists that are coming in to do the subsequent story arcs. Um, it felt like a very... I'm not sure if down to earth or like self-contained story like it's it's not the scope of it I guess is not as epic but there's a lot of 
good things to be had in this story nonetheless like like i said i think part two is probably by number two no maybe number three maybe number three issue top in the top three of my favorite issues in this run oscar high praise high praise uh i really enjoyed it i i think this uh, you know i sort of echo a bit of what um pat said there in that uh it's not as um grandiose in its spectacle but when it when you drill down to the little issues the the conversation of youth versus experience and um wanting to change the world versus knowing how to do it in a lasting way uh it's really great topics for for, for x-men in particular especially a title that's grounded in progressiveness and inclusivity and uh, just really cool really cool to have those um those topics explored a bit um the art was a fantastic return uh, it, it's a bit a bit sad for me that it's the last time we, we saw quietly and I, I really wish that we had seen more of his art throughout the run one of the things we haven't spoken about a little bit on in this um podcast that we normally touch on is the the covers and one mm. of the cool things about the covers for these issues is that although they are pin-up style it's all relevant to the story inside of it none of them were just random characters they all definitely have a link to the the story inside and i think that's a really great return to form with that as well i appreciate that yeah um, i was gonna yeah, i really... was gonna say the sorry go ahead no no you go ahead i was just i was gonna say the same thing about the covers i was thinking that too that we hadn't talked about them yet um and yet this and this is also like the most we see because we don't see a lot of group shots in these covers right mostly mm -hmm. it's solo coverage we get one you know 130 is a group shot 126 is a group shot and then the first issue 114 other than that it's like almost all single character pinups and mm -hmm. often unrelated to the story inside these covers you know one of only one of them is a solo character but and even that one it fits the story like all mm -hmm. of these covers do a great job of fitting the story we've got you know 135 where we've got the the conference room ascent, right? It's them have the teachers all having a talk. The second one we've got, you know, it's almost like a poster and the Omega symbol painted, spray painted over it. You've got an actual riot scene. And then the last one, you know, Professor X, you could read this as removing Cerebra and because he's going to be stepping down in this issue. Mm -hmm. All of that works. It These covers are are really amazing. And uh, I wish we had gotten more covers like this. I think they're they're great. Um, and I, I think I also want to point out it's quite a showcase for the younger, newer characters that were introduced. Um, I think if you are a Quentin Queer fan or a Stepford Cuckoo's fan, like this is one of those key storylines for them that you should read. It's quite the showcase for those. I wouldn't say both characters, but the, the Cuckoo's are actually five characters. Um, <laughs> Sadly, for that, I, 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 we should mention that also. Um, I think this is where the, the unfortunate cuckoo subtraction starts. Right, this lose, is the one where where Sophie. We dies. lose Sophie. Yes, yes. We lose the spice, the the mm -hmm. S and the spice. Now yes, they become the Pice Girls. Um, and I think is this the? I think this may be the the only uh, issue where there's a titular line mention, um, where. Quentin actually calls his little gang here the new X-Men. 
I think that's yeah maybe the only part where where that happens. Yeah, I agree with all of that. Um, it, it's such a good arc and really feels like a return to form. And like Oscar said, it, it's really kind of it's kind of bittersweet in the fact that we get quietly at his best here, but mm-hmm. it's also his last arc. Mm-hmm. Um, although but, I mean, it, 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 he goes on a high note. He goes on a high fantastic. note, and mm-hmm. and at least what follows here is we get we we do get consistent art beginning mm-hmm. in this arc right because we get quietly mm-hmm. does all the issues in this Jimenez mm-hmm. does all of um uh, murder at the mansion Bacalo mm-hmm. does all of weapon plus mm-hmm. Jimenez is back for planet x and then we get Silvestri in here comes tomorrow and each of these artists right the story really suits their respective talents I think that's mm-hmm. something that's really been missing uh with all the the fill-ins we've had up until now mm-hmm and that it, just goes to what you were saying earlier about how they really step on the gas for the mm-hmm. end of this, you know, this third act of, of Morrison's run. And the fact that the artists do whole arcs is amazing and it should just be general standard practice, really. I'm happy to wait a month or two for the book to come out for it to look uniform throughout the arc, especially when you're reading the trade paperbacks. I just think... Uh. Uh, yeah, I, I'm personally fine with it, although I understand why they can't, because especially with comic shops running on such razor-thin margins, like you don't yeah. get X-Men one month, that's like, you know, half your revenue. <laughs> um, so I understand, but I think they need to have better planning. And, but like you said, Oscar, having, you know, an artist do an entire arc, I agree that should be standard practice. Mm-hmm. And there should be some, I think they should be, they should bring back the, the inventory issues where they would have these, you know, these done in one stories that they'd be able to release here and there whenever they've got a gap in the schedule. I think that would really help solve a lot of these types of problems. Um, or just be having, yeah. having the scripts done far enough in advance that the artists have enough time to yeah. produce the work. I would be remiss in not saying that um, there's been a lot of funny moments during the entire run, but I think this arc might be Morrison at his comedic best. It it's just really funny. Yeah, there is definitely some good funny moments. Yes, definitely, absolutely. especially with the special class. Mm-hmm. Yes. No, when, and just this, and just uh, the the fights with like tattoo and like, well, if I raise my hand, I'll I'll kill you. And I must, well, two can play at that game, my dear. <laughs> but that's something else i like about this is the fact Mm -hmm. that because so often in in superhero stories not not just comics but you see this in Mm -hmm. movies and tv shows as well Mm -hmm. it's this idea that as long as you have powers and you have a costume you can be a superhero and you 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 like magically become able to become a uh you know a skilled martial artist right like Mm -hmm. you know batman returns catwoman gets resurrected by cats and all of a sudden she's a master martial artist too in addition to what do you mean that's that's not enough of an explanation for you? Perry? No. <laughs> How dare you? Actually, I okay, wait, now that you mention it, and I, I I had this phase in high school where I would read this um, movie novelizations because I didn't have friends and didn't have anything else to do with my time. Um, but it's actually, I, I don't, it, it doesn't matter because it's not canonical in any way. But in that novel, they actually take pains to point out that 
she took martial arts classes. Oh, okay. And that's why she could do that, which yeah. I'm sure you, you totally wanted to hear. I did want to hear that. <laughs> so, the, so now I've told you. So there you go. I did want to hear that. Yeah, that, that's a, just, you know, just some ex- explanation of how she's able to do all that shit would be great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so often in these superhero stories, the character gets powers and all of a sudden it's like, I can go ahead. I can fight supervillains now. Mm-hmm. And I do like that, you know, even though these kid, the Omega gang is really powerful, mm-hmm. you know, the X-Men who have been training for, you know, 15, 20 years at this point, they're just like, oh yeah, boom, five minutes, it's done. Mm-hmm. I did like that aspect of it. I did like to sh- to show that experience does kind of matter. Even though you have superpowers, you still kind of not got to know how to use them and how to how to fight a battle. Mm-hmm. All right, so I think that that about does it for uh, Riot at Xavier's. So, guys, you want to tell people where they can find you? Sure, guys. You can see my ramblings uh, on Twitter at odat two two zero. Um, I'll take this opportunity to plug uh, my Facebook group that I co-manage, House of Frost. If you want, if you want more Emma Frost content in your life, check us out. Um, I'm also a part of another podcast, Krakoan Exports, where we mainly talk about the current era of X-Men with a few one-offs in between. So you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Um, yeah. And all my stuff is at percivalconstantine.com. It's where you can find access to my books, my art, uh, my other podcasts, uh, superherocinephiles.com. At the time of recording, the episode that just released, uh, Pat came on actually to talk about Eternals and um, just finished recording, just in the middle of recording a batch of episodes. So after that, we kind of go into um, a bunch of movies that, guest chose that perry does not like watching so we covered iron man 3 we covered man of steel uh spider-man 3 next one we're doing is the 1997 justice league pilot and that's all going to be the lead up to the 100th episode where we're where i'm finally doing avengers endgame so a lot of a lot of fun stuff uh, on that show a lot of cool guests on that so definitely listen to that and our website you can find us at anchor.fm e for slash e for evolution uh, you can leave us a voice message if you want, uh, leave us any comments you want, and please make sure to like and review us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening, and we will talk to you next time. E for Evolution, examining Grant Morrison's X-Men, is produced by Percival Constantine with theme music by Aaron Kenny. Audio of Grant Morrison and Stan Lee was recorded at San Diego Comic-Con 2008 and provided by bravogabo.livejournal.com. You can find e for evolution on Twitter and Instagram at MorrisonXPod and on the web at eforevolution.transistor.fm. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email address is eforevolutionpodcast at gmail.com. Support the show by leaving us a review at Apple Podcasts, which helps us reach more listeners. Special thanks to the members of the House of X Facebook group for their encouragement in getting this show started. Thank you.